Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see some faces here that I haven't seen in a while. You may have heard that we increased our maximum to 100 for this Sunday. And if you were listening to any of the announcements over the past few days, you heard our premier encourage us to get out and to start back into living life. So I want to encourage you, those of you who perhaps haven't been here for a while and are watching online, to consider coming out next Sunday or some Sunday soon uh, as we become reacquainted with each other. Maybe we should do icebreaker games on Sunday morning. Is that? No? No sense. <laughs> so, someone said no. Quite. Yeah. <laughs> The worship director is too icy for his own good. So, yeah. Anyway, I want to welcome you. I want to add my word of welcome to what Allison said. Uh, actually, LNA said at the beginning of the service. A little brain cramp there. And uh, um, to those of you especially who are here for the first time, we hope you will feel at home, as comfortable as possible under the circumstances. And to those of you who are online, welcome also. Today we are starting a new sermon series in 1 Corinthians. This letter, written by the Apostle Paul, whose backstory we saw a little bit of, a key moment of last Sunday, uh, written to the church in Corinth, is going to help us in the coming months to focus on the Christian calling to unity. The calling we have as Christians to bring people together, to break down barriers, and to be one body— the body of Christ in a broken and divided world. I read something this week that said that the biggest issue in the church today is division. And of course, it's not just in the church, it's everywhere. And the pandemic has made things worse because our whole society has been scattered and fragmented like never before. And on top of that, all the fear, all of the, the loss, the stress we've been feeling either makes us angry or I think threatens to plunge us into despair. And for the church, we've been separated for almost two years. And so this study of 1 Corinthians is an opportunity to figure out how God is calling us back together in Christ in every way as a congregation, but also specifically how he's calling us as Courtright Church to be reunited as we trust the restrictions of COVID will continue to ease and come to an end even in the coming months. Where is the Holy Spirit leading us into this next chapter of our life together? What comes next? So before we try to answer that question, we need to situate ourselves. Paul wrote this letter to a group of people at a particular time in history. Corinth was one of the largest and most important cities in the Roman Empire. And on this map, you see Jerusalem at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea, where Paul started his journey. Corinth shows up on this next map, a close-up of the Aegean Sea between what today would be Greece and Turkey. The city was located at a commercial crossroads, so merchants would stop at Corinth because it was situated at the narrowest part of a thin land bridge, technically called an isthmus between two harbors. And Corinth controlled ports to the north of it and to the east of it, along which 
all, pretty much all trade passing between Asia to the east and Rome to the west would come. Such things as leather, marble, linen, wine, oils, and spices. You name it, people in Corinth were getting rich off of it. So boats would unload their cargo and have it hauled from one side of this neck of land, which is what isthmus means, it means neck, to the other. Or if their boats were small enough, they would actually drag the boat itself across that neck of land on a road designed for that purpose. So because of all this trade, Corinth developed into a place where sailors would stop for a few days and do what sailors apparently do when they're not sailing, which is party, and then party some more. As Corinth catered to those sailors and many others besides, the city earned a global reputation for offering every pleasure imaginable. So much so that the name of Corinth became slang for sexual promiscuity. To say that you're being Corinthian was a way of calling someone out for immorality, for sexual vice. So the city of Corinth was wealthy and prosperous, but at the same time, it had all kinds of problems. It was a place of glaring injustice and moral chaos. Corinth first appears on the pages of the New Testament when the Apostle Paul visited it on his second missionary journey after spending a short time in Athens. And you get a sense of where he traveled to on this map, starting in Jerusalem, through Asia, across into Macedonia, Athens, and then Corinth. And you can read all about Paul's episode in Corinth in Acts 18. He meets Aquila and Priscilla, Jews who had been kicked out of Rome and ended up in Corinth. He stayed with them and they went into business together. And it's not hard to see, as you get a sense of the city of Corinth, why Paul spent almost two years there and chose it as the headquarters for his planned mission to the West. The city was young and dynamic, not hidebound by tradition. It was a mix of dislocated individuals without strong ethnic identities who were desperate to make something of their lives, to achieve social honor and material success. And the heart of the city of Corinth was the forum, and it was filled with temples and shrines to the emperor and members of his family, alongside temples to older Greek gods such as Apollo, Athena, and Aphrodite. Now, religious practices followed trade routes at the time, and so Corinthians worshipped all kinds of gods from all over the world, foreign and civic deities, as well as the mystery religions of Asia and farther east. And the Jews also had their synagogue and its peculiar monotheistic faith. They worshipped just one god, which seemed strange to most Greeks. So with all this spirituality it's pretty clear that the materialism and, for some, the prosperity of Corinth was not doing the trick. It was not satisfying people. They were searching for something more. Now, all of this, to me, sounds a lot like our pluralistic postmodern culture today. And we're going to have a lot to learn, I trust, from this letter. But let's pray before we open up our Bibles. Holy Spirit, we believe that you have something extraordinary for us as we start into 1 Corinthians. 
Would you open our hearts and our minds to your amazing truth? Would you renew our identity in Christ and give us a new vision, a new enthusiasm, higher expectations for how you're calling us to be the church here in Guelph and to the ends of the earth? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, we're just going to cover the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians. The way letters in the ancient world began was with the name of the author, the sender. So Paul, the author, writes, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and he names his co-author, our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I didn't introduce myself at the beginning. If, if we haven't met, my name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright. And before my family and I moved to Guelph, we lived in downtown Toronto, where I worked for a congregation located right across the street from the University of Toronto's St. George campus. And part of my role in that church was to connect with students and young adults. Carnival Day was always my favorite occasion for doing that. It happens, or used to happen, annually, every September, a few days before classes begin. So thousands of first-year students would swarm onto front campus, this green space at U of T. They would pick up free stuff, and they would browse well over 200 tables representing different clubs and groups. There was the debating club, with copies of Robert's Rules of Order on hand to ensure everything was done decently and in order. I felt quite comfortable among them, I admit. <laughs> Further on, there was the vegan club with their Just for Tofu Lovers t-shirts. Then the Muslim Students Association, U of T's largest club, who consistently had the best free food to give away. One year, I remember seeing a sign for the Downtown Nudist Society right in front of Knox College, the Presbyterian Seminary at U of T. This seemed a little odd to me, as I do not normally associate the Reformed tradition with nudity. Odd, but amusing. I would always count the Christian groups. The record one year was 19. Five Catholic, 11 Protestant, two Orthodox, and a smattering of cults to keep you on your toes. Such an amazing diversity, and yet 
bewildering, perplexing, especially if you were a first-year student. And I recall really great conversations asking students what they were looking for as I stood behind the tables of Christian groups that I had a relationship with. Some students knew whether they wanted to explore their Polish heritage or they were passionate about the environment or about Taekwondo or about joining the young conservatives, they were ready to sign up. Others were wandering around without knowing where they belonged or if they even wanted to belong, keeping their distance. Maybe asking themselves where they could fit in and what was worthwhile. I imagine Corinth was something like that. People from all over the world, so many different backgrounds and interests. Paul had planted a church in that place. He started with his fellow Jews in the synagogue and moved on to Gentiles in the marketplace. We saw that last week, right, in Acts 9. God chose Paul as his chosen instrument to proclaim his name to the Gentiles and to the people of Israel. Well, eventually, Paul left Corinth to continue in that mission, and it was three years later that he wrote this letter. Problems had arisen in the church even as it had grown rapidly. It was divided, it was in rebellion against the teachings of Paul. And we get an immediate sense, I think, of where Paul's going in his opening line. He describes himself as Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He's reminding the church in Corinth of his authority and where it comes from. He's an apostle, not one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, but equivalent Jesus had appeared to him personally on the road to Damascus and sent him out. And he reminds the Corinthian Christians of who they are. And really, these first nine verses are all about identity. He says that they are the church of God in Corinth, sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. What does that mean? Well, the word Paul uses here for church is ecclesia. It means the called out ones, meaning a people called out of the life that defined Corinth, which means, first of all, this, that what Corinth was, the people in the church were as well, or at least had been. The Corinthian Christians had not grown up in a church. They hadn't had Christian faith passed on to them by their parents and while, yes, there were a few Jewish converts there, the church as a whole had no history with the Judeo-Christian God. Instead, the church in Corinth was full of people whose former lives had been completely caught up in Corinthian culture. It was full of people who had worshipped at the temple brothels, who had partied all night, all day, who had been obsessively flaunting their wealth. God had created a community of people, a called-out group of people, people who were his, people whose experience of Jesus gave them a brand new identity. That is the kind of power that Jesus can bring into our lives, into your life. No matter who we are, his grace can change us. And that's what he did in Corinth. It's also, I would say, what he's doing here among us, in this place. God has put his church in this city, many congregations, and he's called us out 
to be his people in the city of Guelph. Would you say that you have that kind of a sense of identity? That you are called out? You've been changed, transformed by the renewing of your mind? Do you feel the guidance of the Holy Spirit in that each day as you navigate work, your studies, retirement, relationships? Well, we're going to explore that question a lot as we study this letter. But Paul doesn't stop there with the church called out. In the same phrase, he points to something else, a potential danger. For yes, while God put the church in Corinth, what we hear Paul warn us about is the danger of Corinth getting into the church. Here's what I mean. As a fledgling church in an influential city, it's not hard to imagine that the worldview of that city could begin to creep into this gathering of God's people. It can happen without anyone really even noticing it. Instead of being people who are called out, the church can begin to become just like the city. And that's what was happening in Corinth. No church is immune to this. No church, including Courtright. Paul is warning us that if we're not careful, if we don't keep in step with the Holy Spirit, if we don't practice the Christian life as we've come to understand it in community, in relationship with others, we can begin to reflect the values of where we are in regards to all kinds of things. Money, power, spirituality, sex, or whatever else. And so Paul's words as to how to become the church God wants us to be are as relevant to us as they were to the people in Corinth. So how does this begin to happen, this becoming the church God wants us to be? Well, here's the general principle, a principle at the core of 1 Corinthians. We become the church God wants us to be simply by being who we already are. We become the church God wants us to be by being who we already are. Here's how Paul puts it, describing us as God's people this way, as sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. To be sanctified is to be made holy. That is your identity. It's who you already are. It is a completed task, not a work in progress. And this is because being holy is something that is done for us and to us. Let me put it this way. We don't become holy by stopping doing the bad things we've been doing. We don't become holy by living up to a particular moral code. We don't become holy by doing enough good things to cover up the bad things in our lives. We don't become holy by being extra-religious. No, according to Paul, we are holy, sanctified in Christ Jesus, which is Paul's way of referring to the gospel. We are made holy, sanctified, because and only because of what Jesus has done for us already. Going to the cross 
taking on himself humanity's sin, our sin, and bearing its consequences in his own body for us, and then offering us his righteousness in its place. Not as a reward or as a wage, something deserved or earned, but as a gift, totally unmerited and yet freely given. That simply is the gospel. Gospel, which means good news. If you have trusted Jesus with your life, if you've seen something in Christ that brought you to your knees in a willingness to believe in him, to follow him, that is who you are. You are sanctified, made holy. It is done. Now, often we hear this word holy and we think of purity. We think of being morally perfect, somehow sinless. And while the gospel does tell us that Jesus takes away our sin, there's more going on here with this word. The word holy at its core really means set aside. It has its roots in the Old Testament where God designated certain items such as special cups or candlesticks, for example, to be used only in the temple and they couldn't be used for anything else. They were set aside for God's special purpose. God's people have been called out of Corinth and are now set aside by the power of the gospel for his special purpose, which is why our call is not just to know and be reminded of our identity, to know that we're holy, but we are also called to act, to live out that identity. That is how we become the church of God, by living out who we already are. Or in Paul's words, we're sanctified, holy, made holy, but we are also called to be holy. That is, you've been sanctified in Christ Jesus, set apart by God's grace, given in him, not because you deserve it, but just because he loves you. And that is the beating heart of who a Christian is. So be who you already are. How's that for a mission statement? Live into whom God made you to be. We are people saved by grace. And that helps us define the reason for which we are called to be set apart. Not to be people looking down on the city, a city we've been called out of, but not a city that we think we're somehow superior to, as if we were better than other people as Christians. No, the gospel reminds us that everything we have comes not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. So can you see how that creates the most amazing confidence when we learn to grasp it, and yet a humility that allows us to live in a way that we grow into Christ-likeness. Instead of judging the world or separating ourselves from the city, here's how we are to live. We're to live as those whom God has called out and set apart as an alternative city, pointing to the good news of the grace of Jesus and the life that's found in him within the city. 
which is to say we live as examples of the gospel of Christ in the place that God has put us, not as people who pretend to have their lives together, but as those saved by grace, loved by him, despite our shortcomings, our faults, our insecurities, our failures, not looking down on others, but extending the grace that we've been given into the world around us by caring for people in it and getting involved. To be people about whom those who are not believers might look at us and say, those Christians, I might not believe what they believe, but I can't help admire the joy they have, the grace they show, the love they give, the honor they show their spouses, the support they give to young people, the way they are faithful friends, the way they go about their business, how they conduct themselves on social media, the help they give to those in need. One tangible, measurable Christian discipline as we wrap our heads around what the Christian life we're called to looks like is for centuries since the beginning, Christians have given their money away. In fact, one ancient writer, only a hundred years or so after this letter was written, described Christians, he found it very strange. He wrote, Christians are promiscuous with their cash, but not with their bodies. They open their homes and invite anyone to their tables, but not into their beds. And this ancient writer found it very odd that this is how they conducted themselves. But the gospel spread. Churches grew. And you know, I have the pleasure of letting you know that even as we at Courtright have practiced that discipline of giving our money away, we've had a challenging year financially. And some of you, if you tracked with the announcements, know that we were coming into November and December quite far behind our budget target. Um, and I found out just four or five days ago that in December, our givings as a congregation exceeded $80,000, more than we've received in any one month over the last 11 years. And we made up so much of that gap in our budget that we can only say to God be the glory. And at this point, some of you who struggle to express enthusiasm in church, I exhort you to clap. Or to... But that is something that sets us apart, right? It's measurable, it's tangible. Christians are known for all kinds of things we wish we weren't known for, but studies show time after time that Christians give financially to the church and to other causes way more than others do. We're called to it. We do it in joy because of the grace we've received in Christ. Now, the next section here in this part of Paul's letter sounds like a pep talk. In verse 5, Paul says that the Christians in Corinth have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. And he goes on in verse 7 to say that they do not lack any spiritual gift. 
Some of this is irony, which you wouldn't pick up on unless you know, and we're going to find it out next week and the week after, that there's a problem in Corinth with their love of knowledge. There's a problem with their approach to spiritual gifts. And those problems have led to terrible division in the church. So in a way here, Paul may be heaping burning coals on their heads, shaming them. But at the same time, Paul is quite sincere. It's true what he says. They have everything they need. The speech, the knowledge, the gifting. He continues to want to encourage them and us in this extraordinary call. Is that how we see ourselves as Christians, I want to ask again, as being called to something extraordinary, an adventure with God. I think many of us have experienced a great deal of disappointment in our lives, and, and as kind of a natural response to that, we've learned to lower our expectations. And we're tempted, perhaps, to be cynical one of my all-time favorite movies explores the idea of an extraordinary calling. Dead Poets Society takes place at a private boarding school for boys in the late 1950s. A new teacher arrives and stirs things up. John Keating, played by the late, great Robin Williams, encourages his students to make your lives extraordinary, he said. He's one of those teachers you just dream of having. And he uses a particular Latin turn of phrase to express this extraordinary life he wants his students to embrace. He says, carpe diem, which means seize the day. And on that first day when he arrives in their classroom, he, he ushers them out into the hallway, which itself seemed radical and maybe inappropriate to some of them. And he has them gather in the hallway around the photos of sports teams from years gone by, old photos in cases with trophies. And he points out that the boys in those photos, though they were taken 50 or more years ago, some of them, are just like the boys in his class. And he whispers in a memorable scene, if you haven't seen Dead Poets Society, go out and watch it. He whispers behind them, carpe diem. Carpe diem, he says. Seize the day. These opening nine verses in 1 Corinthians should leave us in no doubt. As disciples of Jesus, we're called to lead extraordinary lives. First, we're called to be holy, we're made holy, and then we're set apart for God's purposes. But the burden of seizing the day, as Dead Poets Society urges us to do, whether we're young or old, is a heavy burden to bear. And part of the peace that we experience as Christians, that we can experience is that Jesus invites us to lay that burden at his feet. 
because carpe diem is a weight that none of us can bear. None of us can seize the day adequately. Time slips away, and the day that we're supposed to seize is elusive. It comes to an end no matter what we do with it. We cannot hold on to it. And so in verses 3 and 4 here, Paul points us to grace, grace and peace, the grace given us in Christ. We've talked about it already. It's not cheap grace. There's a cost to discipleship. But the amazing thing is that this grace, more precious than anything, is simply given to us when we're ready to accept it. And that is where every conversation we might have with someone who wonders about our faith, a friend we've just made, a coworker, someone in our class, when we get back to being able to talk to them, might ask us, oh, you mentioned you were a church, what's that about? Someone we might invite into an experience of the fellowship, the togetherness we have in Christ. Dead Poet Society ends in death and tragedy. The boys and their teacher, Mr. Keating, end up carrying this terrible burden of guilt. And all of us really are caught in our sins that way, looking back on the ways that we've failed ourselves and failed others, even people who we love. It's no wonder that we're tempted to be cynical and we're ready to settle for what's ordinary. But the good news of Jesus Christ never leaves us there. And in the end, we are without real and ultimate hope until we encounter the amazing grace that Jesus offers us. Paul had every right to be angry, to be indignant in his letter at the ways the Corinthians were acting. Instead, he gently reminds them that they must still wait for our Lord Jesus to be revealed, though they're impatient and self-satisfied. They think they've arrived, but they're wrong. Paul reminds them they still have a ways to go and that the day of the return of the Lord is before them. And so Paul names Jesus nine times in these nine verses. A friend of mine used to talk about JPMs in church. Jesus is per minute. You ever hear of that? Nine times in nine verses. That's a lot of Jesus content. And that is the focus that the church in Corinth needed and that we need to come back to. That is the extraordinary life that we must all depend on. Not our own life, our own ability, our own gifts, our own resources, our own knowledge but God's faithfulness, God who has called us into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's how Paul signs off here. In the end, I think back to those students wandering around at Carnival Day at the University of Toronto. We're like them. All of us, we're asking those same questions. It doesn't matter what age we are. We're asking, is anything really worthwhile? Is anything of lasting significance? Where do I fit into this? What is my purpose right now at this moment in my life? And I believe the answer 
to those questions lies not in our own potential to build extraordinary lives for ourselves, but in God's love for us. The Apostle John says it best. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus Christ, so that we could put our trust in him, receive his grace, and have the extraordinary eternal life that we so long for and that we can only find in him. Thanks be to God. Amen.